The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. Currently at the moment, we've got a Grumman Avenger being restored and a de Havilland single-seat FB5 Vampire. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com Extended Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended. And we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program, outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. <laughs> some people will call you mad. Some people will call you heroes. Uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's, uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, we hear the recordings from the Wings Over New Zealand Christmas Party, held in December at Takawa Aerodrome. The first speaker is Dave Starr, who flew the Douglas Dakota ZK-AZL, which is now located at Takawa Aerodrome. 
Here's Dave. Well, good morning, everybody. I tell you what, it actually gives me great pleasure to be here today. And there are two reasons for that. One is just to be here and talk about my favourite aeroplane. The second one was on Wednesday afternoon. As I was being rushed down to North Shore Hospital in the ambulance, I thought, I hope I have got Dave Homewood's phone number on my cell phone because I'm going to have to ring him up and tell him I can't make it. Anyway, I was discharged on Thursday and, uh, yeah, I'm not just 100%, but uh, a lot better than, than what I was uh, on, on Wednesday, I'll tell you that. Anyway, as Dave said, I live in Snell's Beach. I'm originally from Ardmore. Now, unfortunately, we, we can't put the, the slides up on the, on the screen here today, but what I will do is I will leave this over on that table when I finish so it keeps scrolling through so if you want to have a look at it. And of course the first photo I've got here, for looking at it, is where I was brought up at Ardmore, right on the threshold of 03. This photo in particular was taken by a, um, I'm pretty sure it was Jim, Jim Harkness, who was a member of the Auckland Gliding Club. And this photo was taken out of the, um, their training glider, the old Slingsby T31 GAD. So that's going back a day or three. Uh, all right, I've got to get this working properly first. Anyway, AZL. There are two differences people perhaps do not know between a DC-3 and a C-47. The DC-3 has only got a single door, uh, a cargo door. The C-47 has got double doors and I don't think that's actually AZL's one has been boarded up now, but the front door um, had a, a panel that used to be pulled out for uh, parachuting so that they could go up with, with both doors intact and then just pull the, pull the insert out, you jumped out and then they put it back in again. Anyway, this one was, was manufactured in 1944, came to the RMZAF and its service num number was NZ3545. It served in Singapore and Malaysia uh, um, 49 to 51. Now, quite a, quite a, a history with this aeroplane. It was the last job it did for, for the Air Force was a baggage plane for the Queen when she was out here in 53-54. And then Aussie James bought it at that stage. The Reg plane a good name for a pilot, isn't it? He was the first pilot on it, top dressing. He actually flew it up in Malaysia. And he had one incident one time when he was carrying some troops. I'm not too sure from where to where. But anyway, he had an engine failure on the way. And when he landed, he ground looped it. Because he didn't know that he actually had a flat tyre on that side as well. When, when he pulled a stop, evidently the commanding officer came up to him and said, why are you parked here? You usually park over there. And I believe Red said, well, if you can get this aeroplane over there, go for it. <laughs> anyway, they found out later what had actually happened was the engine was still got, <laughs> had no problem with it, but he had actually been shot at. And the bullet, there is actually somewhere, I don't know whether I, well, I can't find it now because it's all been panelled up. But there is a bullet hole through the undercarriage, uh, uh, the well. It's got a patch on it, 
And what actually happened was it burst, went through the tyre, tyre burst and knocked out the, the auto, uh, um, the mixture control to idle cutoff. And that's why he lost the engine. We sold to James in 54 and converted by James and a few others into the top dressing roll. And it started operating in December of 1955. Now as he worked it out, the Air Force operated the the C-47s at 31,000 pound all up. Anyway, uh, they were restricted, so that's why he was working on a five-ton payload. Anyway, they were restricted to 29,000, and at times, of course, five-ton was a wee bit over overloaded. We did have a problem just after I started, where CAA came to check up, because the last pilot who had been sacked had been to the department and told them what was going on. And there was a person, I don't know whether anybody remembers, George Arkley. George Arkley was for the CAA, he came to visit us one day, and that night, over a few beers, and a swim in the hot pool at the, at the Anchor Inn at uh, uh, the Oceanside Hotel at Mount Maunganui, we worked out that we were only a few pound overloaded. He asked me if I was, I was bullshitting when I said I actually put the payload down a bit when we refilled. And I said, no, no, I'm not. But uh, as soon as he went, of course, we went back to the full five ton again, didn't we? It started off as a two-pilot operation. Now, the original, and I tried to come up with a photo of the, um, of the hopper actuating lever that was in the cockpit, but it, it wouldn't, wouldn't come out very well for me, so unfortunately I haven't got it. But it was operated by the co-pilot, and I believe what it was, the pilot would put his thumb up when he wanted it open, put his thumb up when he wanted it closed. And as Reg said, there were times we were halfway across the farm before we could get it open and halfway across the next one before we could get it closed. Anyway, later on they, they changed it and all DC-3s operating in New Zealand do not have any cow flaps because of the, the um, outside temperature. So what they used was the cow flap actuating uh, levers in the cockpit. One was to select the opening width and the other one was to open and shut it. That carried on for, for many years and then they went to an electric, electric hydraulic where you selected the opening uh, of the, the hopper by one of those levers and the opening and shutting was by one little switch on the, on the control panel. It also had a jettison which was a button on the on the, uh, on the on the wheel, uh, and uh, if you didn't need to get rid of the, the load, you just press that button and the doors came wide open. I know Jack Humphreys did that coming out of Hamilton one day when he had ice on one wing and not on the other, and the aeroplane started trying to, trying to go that way, wouldn't come off. They reckon it shot sideways when he got rid of the load. After a time, the, uh, the one thing that actually happened with the loaders, the original loader was quite a, quite a handful. I loved it, it was sort of, I got used to it over the years. But Ozzy was one of the drivers in the early days. Ozzy saw him and he said, that's not how you drive it, this is how you drive it. So he had a go. Came in to put the load in, found the hopper was too low. So instead of backing out and, and uh, putting the, the, the bucket up a bit, he decided to do it over the aeroplane. And of course it was operated by a winch, and what did Ozzy do? He put it in down instead of up. 
three months later, the aeroplane flew again. It pushed, put, put quite a, uh, uh, quite a, uh, a big dent in the top. Uh, when we used to have uh, pilot you know, and driver meetings quite often, and Ozzy would be going on about a load of drivers, Ron Wolford was one of their pilots in Hamilton, who normally sat at the back of the thing, just quietly would say, we know all about driving, don't we, Ozzy? And that's all he'd say, and Ozzy knew exactly what he was talking about. Anyway, when it went back to work again after three months, the, the job that Reg had to do was actually down, um, down the Carfier area. And on the way, he thought, now, where the hell have I got to put this? I can't remember where I got to, because he only had the one load to do to finish the job. When he got there, there, there was a uh, farm dis discussion group on the farm, so he said, oh, that's good. He said, I'll just dump it on top of them. So, of course, that's what he did. That night, the ops manager got a phone call from the farmer and said, you better tell that pilot he's bloody good. It's the only place on the farm that he'd missed. So he said, how, how was that? Lawson Field, who started Field Air in Gisborne, he was actually the first to start with the heavy aircraft, and he started with the Lodestar, and they carted three and a half tonne. But it wasn't that much, it was only by a few months before, uh, before the, uh, James got AZL going. There was uh, nine Lodestars uh, converted over the years, and uh, out of those nine, they had two fatals. One was, um, he was actually flying in cloud or fog and, uh, and unfortunately had a big lump in the middle of it. He actually had a passenger on board too, which wasn't really a good thing. So they were both killed. And the other one was actually happened to be Les Marshall, some of you know Les Marshall, his uncle, uh, Ted Brown. And he went out one morning from Overing, he had a Danny Uh And the weather wasn't that good. He should have actually gone and put the load somewhere else, but he tried to get rid of it and he got caught in a downdraft. The DZ-3s, there were 13 conversions and out of, out of them there was only one fatal and that was Don Thorpe down working out of Woodburn. Um, unfortunately, Don was probably a little bit hard on the aeroplane because he was going out to a job to the last flight that he ever did, of course, and one wing broke off. So, I mean, he couldn't do anything much about that. James themselves did four conversions. AZL, of course, was the first one. And that was done in New Zealand. The second one was CQA, which they bought, which actually came out of, the, out of storage in the Arizona desert. That was done in the States. Um, and AOI, which was the one that lost the wing, and AZA were both, both done in New Zealand. The uh, quite interesting with the um, the hopper setup on them. Uh, all bar one had the same type of hopper outlet, and they are actually the same boxes that were used on the James's Fletchers. The, the first one that Airland got, which was CHV, who Bob uh, um, Bob Allen flew out of out of Napier. It, um, it had what was known an eastern hopper and it's a, a clamshell, um, clamshell type, type operation. But all the rest had the same as 
What's wrong now is it all? When they went to single pilot operation, they had to change a few things, and it wasn't that much. It was the flap and undercarriage leave had to be altered so that you didn't have to bend down to, to, to grab hold of them, and the flap lever had to be altered to come around the, the undercarriage operating lever. Also, the um, uh, switches, feathering switches uh, for, for the, for the um, starboard engine had to be moved a bit across so that you could actually get at, at it a bit, bit easier. There was another thing to the operation and that was say there was a little door on it which didn't cover the whole of the, the hopper, hopper um, yeah the hopper mouth or the, where you loaded it. it. It went about two thirds of the way across just to stop the buffeting and that was operated by hand by a, a cable which was operated you have to lean back behind you and pull it up and, up and down. And, and uh, that, that never changed in any, any of them. In the late 50s, James Aviation, Field Air, Rural Aviation and Air Contracts, which was Aussie's brother Colin, formed Airland New Zealand Limited just to operate the heavy aircraft. Field Air supplied Lodestars, James supplied uh, AZL and Rural Aviation uh, supplied BYF, which was which they had bought from from Hawaii a few years before. That carried and that the, the, an air contracts was just a, a sort of a fill-in, mainly to give them op operating uh, rights in the southern part of the, the North Island. But I'm not too sure. Quite wasn't all that long after the air contracts pulled out. And then in the, the end of 1962, James decided to pull their one out and go back on their own with the DC-3. Uh, Jack Humphreys and I were given the offer to stay with, with Airland, and we tossed up what it, it, one thing and another and decided no, that we would, we would actually go with James. So that's what, what happened there. Pilots involved over the years was Reg Plain, Bruce Oliver, who was a co-pilot, Peter Anderson, John Valoon, who was a co-pilot, Jack Humphreys twice, Jack Priest, Dick Brooks, an American, who, uh, and, and um, Don Clove, who later became the general manager of Airland and Field Air. They, they sort of uh, flew uh, BYF for quite a while. An Australian uh, airline captain, and I can never remember his his surname, but I think, I think it was Eastman, but even Murray Eastman, he was the one that was fired uh, just about the time I started. Jerry Oman, who was, a, was the first uh, post-war uh, pilot to be trained on ag flying, um, and he was killed in a beaver in Australia when the lift truck uh, broke on it. George Allen, an ex-RAF, uh, a Kiwi, he, was chief, um, he became chief pilot of Airland and Field Air Heavy Aircraft. Bill Peterson, uh, Jerry Cluck, who lives in Perth now and he's exactly 10 years older than me, Les Marshall and, and myself. Jack Humphreys checked out Don Clove, Dick Brooks, George Allen, and Bob Allen, who'd been flying Lodestars, and Bill 
checked out Jerry Clark, Liz Marshall and myself. Jack Humphreys could actually handle that aeroplane. Jack had a problem. He couldn't put anything down on paper, trying to, to uh, do an exam, and that was why he never, ever got into the left-hand seat with Andy Zellan, because he just could not sort of handle the, uh, the paperwork, you know, on exams. But he knew a damn sight more than most of the others did. And he could make that aeroplane talk. And I remember one day at, at Ardmore, it was a Saturday and the gliders were working off there and Howard Monk was the controller and he called Jack and he said uh, watch out for the glider, the auto wire, it's still, still across the, um, the runway. Anyway, Jack put it down on the intersection, he was landing on 2-5. On, uh, he put it down, stopped and then said where's that wire? And he'd actually stopped before the intersection of the two runways. That's, that's how, how he could do it. I started um, originally by a chance thing with the manager for, for uh, the company at Ardmore. One, one time he knew we'd actually just bought a, a front-end loader and he came rushing over one day and said the front-end loader for loading the, you know, the big one, had, their one had broken down, could I go and do it, you know, load it for it. And I said, no problem. Anyway, they offered me a part-time job because at that stage I was working for my father on the farm and I said, yes, I'd love that. And that is when uh, doing that was the first time that I ever went up in an aircraft, which was AZL. Anyway, um, as time went on, that was, that was 1960. And in 61, I, I kept on doing that. In 62, they, uh, I decided that I'd had enough of farming. So I actually got myself a job with Tony Renoff, a uh, contractor at Cleveland. But he didn't really want me until the spring. So anyway, James were looking for somebody to drive the load for AZL at the time. And I said, well, I'll do it for you until, until I start with Tony. Well, that was all right. The first month I came back, after the first month I came back, and I said to Tony, Tony, I don't think I'll come and work for you. And he said, you'd be a fool to stay where you are. So that's what happened. When I started full-time in 62, they'd just done an engine change. And when the engineers were doing a, a run-up, unfortunately one of the engineers had a little bit of finger trouble and he buggered up the other one, so they had to have a, another engine change. We didn't, uh, the Jane Airland didn't have a spare engine at that time, but they were able to, to uh, get one off spans. Now, Airland and James always used to get their engines overhauled in Hong Kong. The Spans one had been done in Australia. And it was a rattly thing. It rattled and clanked, it used more oil than the others and what have you. And we were working out of uh, Tangiwai in 62. And we shot across to Whanganui one Sunday afternoon just to finish a couple of jobs there. And on the way back to Tangiwai, something went wrong with with that engine. So anyway, Jack shut it down and said, now what do we do? Do we go back to Whanganui, because that's the closest? Do we go to New Plymouth, that's where the engineers are? Or do we go to Tangiwai, that's where all our gear is? We ended up back in Tangiwai. Anyway, we decided to pull the cows off and see if we could find anything, and we already found the cylinder that was the problem. So he said, I think pull the tappet cover off and have a look and see if 
drop the, you know, the tappet. So anyway, I took the three bolts off, went to pull the tappet cover off, and the whole cylinder came out of my, of my hand. That engine had done 160 hours since overhaul. Anyway, the engineers came over and looked at it, and they were all set to actually do an en another engine change because they said there's quite a lot of metal in the in the filter. Jack said, "Well, he said I'm happy to carry on working it, provided we we check the filters every, you know, fairly often." So we did. Uh, we started off checking it every five hours, then ten hours, then twenty, and that engine actually carried on. When it had done 450 hours, we were working at Ardmore one day and going at it, and uh, I just got off out of the big loader onto the front end loader to start, you know, getting the next load ready. And Jack had taken off on 125, done a 180, and was heading back towards towards the east. And I heard this almighty bang. And the next thing I saw, that the aeroplane sort of changed attitude and start heading down. And then the next thing, it came back back on one uh, on one engine, and what had happened was the master rod had broken. So no wonder we had the big bang. Anyway, that was quite a ride. Jack thought, now where am I going to dump it? Oh, I'll do it on Tony Reynolds' farm. One of Tony's uh, workers was actually disking up the paddock, and he was going the same way as the aeroplane. He didn't hear it coming. He copped a lot. Well, it only took Tony five minutes to get from Cleveland to Ardmore with jumping up and down saying, Yahoo, thank you very much. Anyway, that was sort of uh, things that, that, that can happen. One day we were um, operating the two, Hazardale uh, and CQA, we were working off, off Ardmore. Bill was flying, Bill Peterson was flying Hazardale, Jerry Oman was flying CQA. And Jerry was sitting at the edge of the runway waiting to come in to, to get, get a load. And he, he was watching Bill taking off and he says, I hope he doesn't have the port engine fail on him at this stage. He knows he's going to thought it and it happened. Anyway, Bill was able to keep it uh, uh, straight. I can't remember what actually there was the problem with the engine at that one, but it's funny how things happen when you start thinking about them. Uh, as far as myself was concerned about flying them, when Bill Peterson started, uh, came on it, he had a D, um, a D category instructor's rating. So we decided that I would start logging some of the ferry flying, which, which I did. And it was before I got my commercial licence, I actually had sat the exams and passed, and Bill signed me out you know, as a pilot on the, with a DC3 rating. I sent everything off to the uh, CAA, and a few days later, Harry Bilby, who was the testing officer in Auckland at the time, caught up with me and he said, uh, I just see a thing come through for you for a rating on the DC-3, and I said, yes. Well, he said, I couldn't okay it. He said, that's not the done thing. And I said, oh, is that right? He said, I've sent it down to Murray Cooper in Wellington and he will decide. Well, a week later, I got it back all signed and sealed. A month later, they changed the rules that DCATs could not give the initial multi-engine rating. After that, it went on, I started flying in '69, and uh, Reg, Reg Payne, who had been the first pilot, he moved to Kaiko uh, as a pilot ops manager for Advanced Aviation. And as Reg always said, the only way that James could get him 
back flying for them was to buy the company, which they did. Anyway, he ended up as the, as the um, backup pilot. And in 1966, when Bill broke a bone on his foot, on the, slipped on the ladder after refueling, Reg flew up and actually I'd piloted for him. And I spent um, three months living in the Kaikoui pub at, at, at that particular time. Anyway, later on, Reg, Reg had a heart attack and of course lost his, lost his license. And uh, seeing I had a rating, I was offered the job as backup pilot. Now, I haven't done all that much flying on DC-3s, but i tell you what, what I did do, I loved it. And I would have loved to have had that job full time. But being a married man, you're away from home too much. And I'd, I'd had uh, nine years of that loader driving. And the first 12 months we were married, I was away from home for six months. So anyway, that was, that was the, the, way, the way things went on that. And then the last time I flew it was, in, I think it was in April 1974, up in um, Kaikoui. And Reg came in one day to give me a briefing and he says, can I have a go? And I tell you what, he had not lost his touch. He could, he could still fly it just like that. I used to have to go every month and have a, have a you know, just a refresher with Bill. And uh, luckily I could fly down in the Fletcher, so I'd either go to, I went from Ardmore to Kaikoui, Whittianger, and what have you. But once, in the early days, uh, when we were around transport, when we got to, um, you know, different places, was a little bit, little bit awkward, so we used to get a rental car. Anyway, for a while, Jack, Jack Humphreys had a motorbike, so we put that in the back, and he also had a moped, which he sold to me, so that went into the back of the aeroplane too. I had an incident at Owen Heidi going back to the, to the strip there one, one day after having lunch and for some, something happened and I went right over the front of the, the, uh, of the scooter and uh, finished up at, at a doctor's in, in Hubbardville getting my, my head stitched up and our uh, accounts manager at James one day called me into the office and he said, I want to know a few particulars for the insurance company. When you dismounted from your motorbike in an unorthodox manner somewhere in Siberia. <laughs> anyway, Bill Peterson and I were the first ones to have the to have the Fiat 500, and we used to when we first got it, we used two big planks and a couple of sawhorses to support them until we got the um, um, proper ramps uh, ramps done. And on these photos, you will see that um, I've got one a couple of uh, one with the uh, uh, what is it with the Fiat, and it's not an AZL, it's one of the other with with a different type of ramp. And then the next one is Jerry Cluck with a with a, uh, a mini, and those are the types of ramps that we had had built, and they they worked worked very very well. With the loaders, the first one was built on a, an old Thornycroft Coles crane. And all it was was a big, it was extended chassis on it, and it was a big, uh, a big jib. It was actually 32 feet to the top of the jib, and the five ton you used to lift that up, and you'd go out over the aeroplane and put it in. I could actually get the load five ton into the into the DC3 in 45 seconds with with that. It had two ton counterweight on the, on the front, and uh, there was one driver here in Hamilton. 
at one stage, uh, for some reason, one of the one of the counterweights fell off, and of course, as one fell off, the front of the loader went up, and uh, then all the rest came up, and he came, finished up with the bucket on the ground and him away in the air. And then he called out to the pilot, who was Jerry Cluck at the time, and he said, what do I do? And he says, let the windshield, you silly uh, fella. Which he did. And the other one was Les Marshall, who was working out of, out of um, Rotorua one day, and he was coming into land, and all of a sudden he saw this, uh, something's different. And here was the loader sitting on its side. And he said, as he called his driver at that, that time, fat boy, he said, here he was scrambling, scrambling out of the door. And he'd, he'd actually got a bit too much of a sway on the bucket and it tipped over. And I tell you what, there was very little damage done to it. That, that loader was the first one built. And it was built by Les DeLacy, Vera Machinists, when he had very few pieces of equipment. Ozzy started him off and he worked out of the hangar and then, then he finished up with, a, with his own workshop there not far from the, the main hangar and then, then they moved to Tirapa and that company is still going in, in Tirapa and his son I think runs it now. The second loader that, that I drove, or it was actually the first loader I drove, but the second one was actually built by the ops manager at, um, at Ardmore, Dutch Middleton who actually owned a company called Bulk, uh, Bulk Fertiliser Distributors and it was built on an old auto car and it was a conveyor belt one. Um, yeah, it, it was a little bit rumpety but, but it did the job. And then from then on, uh, well, with, the, with the old Thornycroft one, it used to take us two and a half hours to get it ready for work. Well, for the road and two and a half hours to get it ready to work at the other end until we had a lot of modifications done to it and we got it down to one and a half hours. Another one that the Barrett Machinists built, they built on an old um, uh, 6x2 um, International and that was another conveyor belt one. That one was actually quite, quite an interesting um, loader really uh, and I'll tell you what, it could move on the road too. The only problem was you actually had to put, the, when you were on the road, you just put the bucket, uh, the, put the um, conveyor belt down, and it was 18 foot 10 from the front bumper to the front of the front of the boom. And there was a driver in Wanganui one day. I'd just been for a warrant of fitness, and he uh, stopped at a compulsory stop sign with the bumper, forgetting it was 18 foot 10 sitting out the front of him. And a bus came under, ripped the top out of the bus, and bent them bent the conveyor belt frame. Another time the same loader was going through the Vatimatu Gorge and on a corner it punched the whole thing through the side of a cattle truck. And then at Vatimatu Gorge again, a cop came round the corner and went under the, under the boom. And he was not impressed. So from then on we had to have an escort car with wide load following. There was Jack, yeah, it was Jack, Jack Humphreys and I were taking it down from Hamilton to New Plymouth one time and Jack was in my car with a sign on it, and I was behind him. We got to the top of the hill at Tikawiti, and there were three hitchhikers, so we stopped to see if they'd like a ride. There were three Canadian girls, and they were heading for Queenstown. So that was right. One got on the loader with me, the other two with Jack, and off we went, and we got to New Plymouth, went round the rural aviation, said, anybody heading to South Island tonight? And we said, yep, there's a tanker going down. So he took two of them, 
and then the third one stayed and was going to fly down with Les Keane the next, next day. She had three days in New Plymouth because of the weather. Those girls never walked another step, a single step, from the top of the Tikkawiti Hill to Queenstown because where the boys took them to in the South Island one night they decided that they would put them in the very Cessna 180s and fly them to Queenstown and have a big party. It was another time when Barry Scott and I were shifting it from, from Hunterville to Napier and we had to have it off the road by day to, uh, before dark. And just before, and it was getting late, and just before Napier, I came behind this car who, and I couldn't get enough out of there for the old load to go past it. So I decided to blow it. So I went right up just about with my bumper up against the back of his car with the boom out over the top of the car. And the next thing I saw him sort of look up, look in the mirror, there was a cloud of smoke out of the exhaust and I never saw him again. And I think what had happened, a piece of super had dropped off the, off the conveyor belt and hit him on the windscreen. Another one that um, they were built with was a chap David Taylor in Tauranga built a conveyor belt later for us. First one he built on a TK Bedford. That finished up with Southern Air Super in, in the South Island. And uh, the story goes that somebody one day was moving around the Blenheim area. Well, I don't know quite where it was, but anyway, it, that was 13 foot 5, I think, to the top of the top of the big one in the folded because it, it, that one, the conveyor belt, folded back over, back over the hopper and it, uh, he, he had a bridge which was 12 foot 5. So later go, I mean the truck vehicle came to a very sudden stop, windscreen came out, popped out, never even broke it and the driver followed the windscreen. David Taylor, actually, if, if, I don't know whether he built any for um, for field air or not, but he built two more for James, and they were both built on the D-series Fords. The other one that he built was a static loader, which was at Ardmore. First one was at Ardmore, and that was a that worked out very well. Um, we could get it from wheel start, uh, stop to wheel start of the aeroplane. We could get it down to 35 seconds for five ton. David built. I don't know how many he built in the finish, but he built quite a lot for field air at different places, like. Gisborne, Napier, Oderingy, um, no I don't think he put one in Takapau but several others as well. They were, they were a, a great loader. In Australia they tried uh, top racing with the Bristol Freighter which didn't last very long because they weren't cutting enough in it for a start anyway. Anyway they built it, an old loader, it was actually on an old Chev 4 before and it's, that was a real Heath Robinson outfit. Anyway, Elan saw it there sitting there one day, so they bought it and brought it over to New Zealand. I had the pleasure of driving it in Galatea once, and that was enough. Fieldier also, their first loaders for the Lodestar with conveyor belt built on a Ferguson tractor with a little Bedford dump truck which would dump the super on the, on the uh, conveyor and load it. They had to alter it a wee bit for the DC3, but it, it worked not too bad. But we got to one stage where one of the Bedford's chassis broke in half because it was a little bit much for it for five ton, you know, when it had been used to three and a half. Basil Martin had a, a very narrow escape and uh, I, I'm not too sure he was in Gisborne or Wairau. I think it might have been Gisborne. Anyway, something went wrong as he was coming in under the loader, you know, the stack loader. And before he got into position, 
something gave way and the loader went right through the top of the aeroplane. It made quite a, quite a hole in it. He was lucky because he was able to get out through the, uh, the escape hatch, you know, in, in the cockpit. That particular aeroplane is, that's the same aeroplane now that Chatham's here have got it. Uh, I don't know, probably a couple of other little things. The record tonnage for the DC-3, I don't know about field air ones, but James one for Azadel was 320 tonne, and that was done on the Rookaha Swamp. And it was quite a short day too, I believe. They started about 7 o'clock and they were knocked off by 4. But it was only out on the swamp and they were sowing lime at a great rate. Um, Bill and I did, the most we ever did was 225 from Ardmore. In the last 50 of those, 225 was on Waiheke, the rest of it was, um, you know, close, close in. The first driver I, 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 I worked with was a chap by the name of Tom Rendell. And he always had a comment to say when we were working out at Great, Barrier, uh, Great Mercury Island, where are you working today? He says, going halfway to Peru. And it was a 55 minute turnaround for that job and an hour for, the, for, for a two load to the Great Barrier. There's probably a lot of other little things, you know, that have happened over the years. And I'll tell you what, I wouldn't have missed one of them. I had a, had a great time on it. And I am glad to see that Azadel is now here. And I hope and trust that things can be done and that it can last for a, for a long time. Because I've got a lot of time for that airplane. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dave. That was really interesting and uh, quite entertaining. Um, just uh, continuing a little bit with uh, AZL, I'd like to um, introduce Gavin MacGyver, who's uh, one of the members of the team that are now looking after the aircraft here, and he's just going to give us a couple of minutes of uh, uh, extra on, on the aircraft. Thank you, Dave. Is that coming through all right? Um, I don't remember hearing Dave say that uh, AZL her last flight was September 1974 and the cost of renewing her certificate of airworthiness just exceeded the value of the aircraft. ZK AZL had flown a total of 14,040 hours in the military and top dressing service had spread over 160,000 tonnes of fertiliser. In 1975, ZK AZL original AGDAC was donated by James Aviation to the National Field Days Association at Mystery Creek. In 1984, June 6, ZK AZL was cancelled from the Civil Register. This year, she was transferred from Mystery Creek to Tokofi Airfield. I'm one of the volunteers for the DC-3 ZK AZL project. We have 18 volunteers and we're using this occasion to attract more if you haven't already volunteered. This project is headed up by Derek Lewis, project coordinator, and Pete Laurie, Tikofi Airfield Manager. Please see me if you're interested in volunteering.
This aircraft has had an illustrious life, 30 years of flying, military and top dressing, and 45 years of being on display. She will never leave the ground again, but in our mind she will soar like a bird. She looks good from afar, but she is far from good. ZK AZL needs strengthening and corrosion repairs to continue her life of leisure. Hope you can help. And the final speaker in this episode is Des Jide. Unfortunately, we experienced a thunderstorm come through while Des was giving his talk. So there's a little bit of background noise, but you should be able to enjoy it anyway. Here's Des. Right, uh, good afternoon fellow aviation enthusiasts and thank you for the opportunity to be one of your guest speakers. My presentation is simply how I got into aviation and some of what I did with the opportunities. I would also like to take this opportunity to generally acknowledge the many positive influences of others that have equipped me to lead such an interesting life in aviation by mentoring, teaching and many of their fine examples of operating aircraft. Some of them will be mentioned by name and I apologise for those that uh, don't get a mention but uh, by no means they uh, don't deserve it. For those of you that are interested in aviation history, there will be some event marks mentioned, although not necessarily expanded on, otherwise the presentation would take forever. Uh, believe me, I can talk a long time. Nevertheless, I hope you will enjoy these, those references in the context in which they will be given. Aviation has indeed been a big part of my life, albeit not commercially in the true sense as we know it. Before I cut to the chase, let me take a few moments to reflect on some of my family history that leads to my eventual aviation working and private life experiences. I was born in Hamilton in August 1954 when my parents uh, were assistant managers of a Tikopai dairy farm on Crawford Road. Three miles that way, or five kilometres in modern day technology north of here. It has subsequently become very obvious to me that my parents got very involved in local activities and with the local people of Tikopai district during their four years here. However, a year after my brother Peter was born, my parents and I was about three, my parents decided to, um, as part of their quest for future farm ownership, to move to Mungary in Auckland and to manage Hydra Stock Farm for the Hydra Bacon and Ham Company. In the almost two years at Hydra, Sister Delwyn was born. Uh, Dad contracted um, and survived the potentially fatal spinal meningitis disease that his father had uh, died of uh, when Dad was five years old. Dad also, despite this hiccup along the way, managed to transform Hydra from running at a four-figure loss 
to a four-figure profit. And in the days of pounds, shillings and pence, that was huge money. However, Mr Harrison, Hydra's owner, was absolutely not impressed and summonsed, literally summonsed Dad, to his Ponsonby mansion. And on the scale of things, it's still a very huge house when you see it. Insisting that the farm must be run at a loss. Obviously a tax dodge for their company. Well, doing so was definitely not in Dad's farming ethics, which in modern day terms would be his DNA. So barely six weeks after I started primary school at the Mungary Bridge Primary School, we moved to manage an extremely remote dairy farm eight miles or 13 kilometres north of Apitu on the South Manukau Heads Peninsula. I started at Apitu Central School on the 5th of October 1959. That was to prove to be one of my significant aviation dates, as you will soon find out. Yet again, Dad worked hard to improve this farm for its non-resident owner. During the year we were on that farm, I got up close to an aircraft for the very first time. It was an agricultural aircraft that was operating from a paddock on a neighbour's farm. I recently did a visit up there and took a photograph that was the paddock. And our farm that we were on was on the high point, just over there. Thanks to my mother, who had prepared afternoon tea for the pilot and the support crew, one of which was my father, um, we got to see this aeroplane up close and personal while it was shut down for afternoon tea. Although I can now reflect on this being a personal aviation event, Mark, hand on heart, it certainly didn't spark an immediate interest in uh, me eventually having an aviation career. For goodness sakes, I was only five going on six. And um, as we all know, people my age, um, in those days, kids weren't that pretentious. In recent times, and many thanks to Dave and his WANS associates, I have found out that it would have been one of the two Piper Super Cubs operated by the Glen Murray Top Dressing Company based in Pukekohe. And the pilot was quite likely to have been Chaz Chambers. Sadly, Chaz suffered a fatal accident um, after clearing sheep off the paddock he was going to land in. And as he was doing his final flare and to land, one of the sheep went rogue, went in front of him, he clipped it, and sorry, he uh, suffered fatal injuries. That was in the early 1960s. But once again, Dad's hard work was not really appreciated, so after discussions with Alec and Pat Phillips, um, they decided to move back to Crawford Road and to Kofi with the view of going into partnership with them on their poultry farm, which was the neighbouring farm to the farm that they were on when I was born. Um, Dad made a call to Hearthstone's Trucking Company and to Kofi to ask if he could have the use of one of their trucks to complete that move. Doug Hearthstone, 
who still lives here and uh, also was a pilot in his day, took the call and repeatedly said, Stan, we'll do better than that. I'll bring it up and help you move back. So thanks, Doug. The move was made in November 1960. Now back on Crawford Road, Peter and I started school at Tokopai Primary School and during our time in Crawford Road, we were all, once again, very active in the Tokopai community, particularly with Country Women's Institute, Parent Teacher Association, um, church, indoor bowls, music, tennis, calf club, milking, haymaking, and scouts. My next notable aviation experience was attending the opening of Auckland International Airport on the 29th of January 1966. And by the way, you're not going to get a test after this uh, um, presentation on what I've told you about history. But it was 29th of January 1966. We were on holiday at uh, Piha with my music teacher and her family. Um, and we took time out from our holiday to come into Mangere for the opening. I spent the whole day solo, and so much for parental responsibilities in those days, eh? But everything was a lot more secure, obviously. Checking out all of the static displays, aircraft, and watching the airshow flying demonstrations. Yet the only aircraft I got to sit in a pilot seat of was a Moran Sauna MS-880B, which had been part of the flying display program, and provided by Seabrook Fowles Motor Company from Auckland, who also had a, uh, a branch in Hamilton. They had imported these aircraft in the early 1960s. Coincidentally, this was possibly, and most probably, the aircraft type, well it was the aircraft type that I was to start my flying training in almost four years later, but it was possibly the actual aircraft because in my 50 years, uh, of flying, I've never seen another rally in that colour scheme. Good point to remember. Almost a year went by, New Year's Day 1977. We went to Raglan for the day and met up with family, close family friends over there at the Raglan Reserve next to the airfield. Once again going solo, which wasn't a big deal. Um, I inquired about the price of joyrides in the Waikato Aero Club 172 that was there for that uh, purpose. I then went back and asked Dad if we could go for a flight and um, um, it was going to cost us 10 shillings each or a dollar each. Me by now being more than a little interested in aviation than Dad and my friend who was the same age as me. I got to occupy the front right hand seat for my first flight experience um, aged 12 and a half. Now, back in Tokopai, Dad went to Scouts initially as a parent to help and ended up being our Scout leader. During our time in Scouts, we learned many skills such as camping, cooking, rope work, tramping, caving, and developing good community work ethics. In mid-1969, for three consecutive weeks, Max Clear, who established this airfield and facility, rest in peace Max, 
came to our scout meetings and taught us many aspects of aviation. After the third week, he invited us to this airfield on the Saturday to experience flying firsthand. We all got two flights each, and in the finest traditions of scouting, we cooked a barbecue lunch. Naturally, and um, without being asked, his fellow local home-built aircraft pilots who also had the aircraft here entertained us with demonstrations of their flying skills, as they so often did around the district on a regular basis. During the day, flying instructor Lewis Valiant arrived with his newly purchased aircraft, a Moran Sauna Rally Charlie Kilo Mike, to start flying lessons from this airfield. When we got home later that day, Dad said he recognised Lewis as the pilot who we had flown with in Raglan on New Year's Day 1967. He went on to say, that I should do my flying training with Lewis instead of attending the Scout Flying School at Wakaroa in January 1970 as I had been planning and saving to do. I thought that was a pretty good idea. So after completing my part in the Hamilton Theatrical Show, which was around the world in 80 days, I started flying training on the 5th of October 1969 right here at Tikopai. Coincidentally with the pilot who I had had my very first flight with and in the only aircraft type I'd sat in at the Auckland International Airport opening. Lewis was an extraordinarily gifted flying instructor, teaching me above and beyond the normal syllabus. For example, to this day, over 50 years on, he is the only instructor to have taught me agricultural airstrip flying technique and skills. He is the only one that has taught me the proper mountain flying techniques. He is the only one that has drummed into me to, with the best use of wind conditions, careful management of the airframe and engine at all times. He was a remarkable man. This man had been turned down from being a Royal New Zealand Air Force pilot during the war because uh, he wasn't deemed not suitable. So when he came back from the South Pacific as an engineer for the Air Force, he thumbed the nose at the Air Force, got out, and he got his license. He then got his commercial license and went uh, commercial flying, uh, secondary airline sort of stuff, plus a bit of agricultural work before he decided to be, uh, become an instructor. So he, ladies and gentlemen, he had the life skills uh, behind him before he became an instructor. Very few instructors these days have a similar sort of uh, background which I brought up with my um, instructor that did my private pilot license test. I attended the Narawaki High School from 1968 to 1972. 
they were very good years, I enjoyed them immensely. I was very fortunate to have chosen a course to ensure that I had Frank Ives, an ex-NASA mathematician, who was working for NASA from the uh, late 1940s through to 1963. And if you've seen the film Hidden Figures, that was the era that he was there. He was my maths and physics teacher for my whole five years. Sadly, I missed out on getting university entrance in 1972 by nine marks. My only subject downfall was not achieving the minimum mark in English, otherwise I had heaps of uh, marks to qualify. Nevertheless, I went to the RNCF recruiting office in Auckland in late January 1973 to see if I could still apply to be um, enrolled as a direct entry pilot without UE. They said no, but suggested I still join, complete training in the ground trade, and then they would internally assess me for pilot training. And I think we'll just take a break there for a moment. Okay, we'll uh, continue on for as long as we can before that rain hits. So yes, um, I joined the RNZAF in late, uh, late July 1973 and completed training in the safety equipment and surface finishing trade in 1976. The trade is responsible for the maintenance and repair of all safety equipment used by aircrew, such as personal life support systems, life rafts, life jackets, helmets, and parachutes. I could have up the tuna parachute. Surface finishing trade, uh, part of the trade involves the painting of aircraft, associated parts, plus includes sign writing. Um, although the trade has a great deal of variety and huge job satisfaction, after almost seven years, I decided to pursue work as air crew, applied to train as a helicopter crewman. During my almost three years on working on helicopters at number three squadron in my trade, I got my first helicopter hands-on flying opportunity, plus I had a whole heap more, mainly thanks to the Navy WASP helicopter team, I was hooked. I attended a three-day aircrew pre-selection course in mid-1979 and on the last day had a final interview. The only question that they hadn't been able to answer in three days of intense scrutiny and testing was why was I applying to be a helicopter crewman and not a pilot? Obviously through the three days they'd actually um, figured that I had private flying um, experience and I was very interested in, the, in that. I explained that to be a pilot I needed to be commissioned, which would markedly reduce the amount of actual flying time I got due to the commissioned officer ground training management uh, uh, prerequisites. They accepted that consideration but said the door would always remain open to train as a pilot if I so desired in the future. As a result of taking this pathway, I got almost 14 years of uninterrupted flying. Six years as a helicopter crewman and just over seven and a half years as an air ordnanceman on Orion P3 maritime aircraft. 
During my time on helicopters, I did many search and rescues, spent two one-month stints flying in Antarctica, which were absolutely outstanding experiences. On exchange with the American Navy, flying in their twin-engined Huey helicopters, UH-1Ns. Two years in Singapore, mainly flying in support of the New Zealand Army uh, battalion that was based there. A month in Hong Kong, flying with the Royal Air Force and their Wessex helicopters. Two years based in Christchurch at Arnzo Base Wigram at the Three Squadron Detachment. And finally six months of peacekeeping duties in the Sinai with the multinational force and observers. Interspersed with these activities and postings were many various exercises, civil aid, disaster relief, work operations in New Zealand and Fiji. Yes, I'm the first one to admit that helicopters are inherently dangerous. And I experienced three potentially fatal incidents Having circumvented those, it proved the value of our training and preparation to always deal with the unexpected. Overall, the highlights of helicopter flying greatly outweighed the negative aspects. I extended the positives by learning advanced helicopter flying techniques, including formation flying, and taking every opportunity of hands-on that was available. Interesting enough, when I was in Hong Kong, the Brits, being the Brits, could not see their way through to converting me as a Wessex helicopter crewman and signed me off in the month that I was there. Unlike the Americans, they had me signed off in about four days down Nantucket. But that was okay, because they only fly with one pilot and one crewman in the Wessex. So I spent most of my time upstairs in the left-hand seat flying the Wessex. That was no problem at all. The time for a change eventually came, and in January 1986, we moved from RNZAF Base Wigram to RNZAF Base Tanuapai, and I joined, joined five squadron that operate the P3K Orion Maritime Aircraft. Just prior to making the move and being all packed up ready to go, I got a call to be the third crew person on a Saturday flight to find an Army assault craft that had been lost on the Clarence River near Kaikoura. The designated co-pilot was unavailable due to um, a sudden illness. And so I unpacked my gear and went across. I flew initially as the co-pilot in the left-hand seat and as was normal, the pilot and I shared the flying until our refuel at Kaikoura after an unsuccessful search. While preparing to swap places with the other helicopter crewmen for the flight back to Wigram, he observed that this was essentially my last official flight as a crewman so I could carry on uh, as the co-pilot. After the start-up, the pilot further acknowledged the situation and gave me full control. Full control. So for my final flight as a helicopter crewman, I did the takeoff at Kaikoura, the flight and then landing back at Wigram. Such was, and still is, the immense trust we have in each other's abilities on helicopters. I trained as an air ordnanceman who are primarily responsible for the dispatch of all armament stores such as 
sonoboys, torpedoes, flares, and the maintenance of all associated equipment. We also undertake all forms of photography from the aircraft. Do parachute, uh, parachutes, mail drops from the back door, ensure that we have suitable catering provisions for each flight. I always had plenty of help from the other crew members when shopping for supplies at overseas locations. <laughs> um, it was sort of a contentious thing with, between helicopters and P3s, and the P3 could stand up, go down, have a really nice meal. In the helicopters we had um, a, a lunch bag with a filled roll, a fruit juice, a piece of fruit, a piece of cake, and that was about it. Albeit our galley was very limited in the Orion, we managed to produce some very enjoyable and high-tech meals, which you'll see from uh, some of the photos on the desk over here. It was always good fun. Even before completing my seven-month air ordnance training course, I got my first Orion hands-on flying opportunity. Unlike flying helicopters, I was only permitted to fly the Orion at no lower than 1,000 feet above the sea or ground surfaces. But despite the slight limitation, the many subsequent opportunities to fly the aircraft were always fully accepted. While on a maritime exercise base at Edinburgh, the Royal Australian Air Force Base near Adelaide, we had to have a compulsory day off. I used the time to visit the aircraft simulator um, and catch up with an Australian Navy helicopter pilot friend of mine that had spent time with in Singapore, uh, sorry, Sinai, that was working there. I eventually asked if I could see the simulator in action and he checked the booking sheet and found that Crew 10 had just cancelled their two and a half hour sortie and he asked if our crew would like it. Being certain that my crew would, I returned to our accommodation, advised the two pilots and the two flight engineers to get into their uh, uh, flying kit and the five of us had an important flight to undertake right now. Our captain um, said, no dears, this is our day off. I said, sorry Chris, not today for us five. We've got this really important two and a half hour flight that we need to do right now. I finally let them off the hook and told them that we had the simulator for two and a half hours. How the hell did you get that? You know better than ask questions. Being certain that my crew would uh, return to uh, return, I, um, we did the flight and for the last 20 minutes I got into the left hand pilot seat and successfully completed three approaches and landings. Apart from flying the Orion, I also learned how to operate most of the air electronic equipment, including the radio, radar, ERDS, navigation equipment. So later on one day when urgently required equipment was required at RNZAFA Park here and Five Squadron having the only serviceable aircraft to do this sortie, we were asked to, to do it. The squadron then realised that we didn't have any navigators still at work on that day and we're about to advise base operations, sorry, can't do it. And I said, oh, wait a minute, I can do it, I can be your navigator. They said, do you know the systems? I said, of course I do, I've learned them. So, I successfully got us there and back with no real major issues at all. The P3K Orion is a very complex aircraft and extraordinarily very multi-role. It is normally operated with a crew of 11, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, if necessary, virtually all weathers. My magnificent family 
grew up accepting me coming and going at all times of the day of any day of the week. When on search and rescue duty, that was more than normal. You just never knew when you were going to get the call. Plans, maritime exercises, training and fisheries patrols were much easier to pay for. But they were, they've been magnificent. The highlight of my time on Fire Squadron was our scratch crew thrown together in August 1988. Going to RAAF Edinburgh in October 1988 to compete for the Fincastle Anti-Submarine Hunting Trophy. The RAF were on a hat trick. They really wanted to win it. The Aussies were celebrating their bicentenary, 1988. They wanted to win it. The Canadians, they had a brand new electronic air electronic um, system fitted and they wanted to prove that that was the all singing not determined, not deterred by these but known factors we simply got along and did the basics exceptionally well we won the trophy above all expectations we won the trophy our expat the tactical coordinator was absolutely delighted. Eventually I decided it was time to retire from flying in, in July 1993 and I got uh, the inaugural role as the executive officer of the RNZAF Aviation Medicine Unit based in the historic Clark House at Hobsonville, working with Dr David Powell, squadron leader Dr David Powell, it was for intents and purposes simply an administrator without as it happened, a job description. Wow, what a fantastic opportunity, I thought. David was happy for me to create the job description on the fly, which I did. Within a few weeks of getting there, though, the call went, well, the call didn't go out, but uh, we had Cyclone Bowler go through and knock a whole lot of yachts out of the yacht race and uh, some were sunk and they had to be rescued. And the, the fire squadron was going the whole weekend. I knew that they would be stretched with crew, so I contacted them and said, do you want another crew member for the, the last flight on the Tuesday? They said, yes, please. I rang up David and he said, go for it. So I went back and did this uh, last flight. We were running low on fuel. The closest uh, place to land was Samoa, so we stayed in Samoa that night. We often stayed at Aggie Gray's hotel in Samoa, and I had the very uh, great fortune to meet Aggie before she passed on. But I got to know her family very, very well. They were absolutely delightful family. No ears and graces, just awesome people. They got a really great surprise when I turned up there on that particular day. They said, Des, we thought that you were retiring. I said, yes, I was until the cyclone hit, and then I just, all hands to the pump, here I am again, oh that's great. So we, we had a, a very good night that night. At AMU I assisted with the hyperbaric chamber operations. Initially, after, uh, initially as an internal instructor, then as the chamber operator, and finally as the chamber controller. A position only up until then reserved for doctors or very, very experienced medics. I was neither. I had proven myself and I was given the reward of this honour. I provided specialty training for ab initio and refresher aircrew courses that came through 
Clark House, wrote a brief history about Clark House, and then began accepting guided tours by interested civilian service groups like uh, garden clubs and all that sort of stuff. I got my teeth into the very disorganised and well-stocked medical library, maintained equipment for our use um, as first response aircraft accident investigators, investigators, and got long overdue maintenance carried out on Clark House to keep it going. Our operation at AMU was all about flight safety. No ifs, buts or maybes, that was the main. But while I was there, I spoke to the OC of RNSO Base Auckland Medical Squadron, Wing Commander Len Bagnall, and I said, there is no reason why your squadron cannot, like most other squadrons, go out on expedition training. He said, oh no, no, we can't, we can't do that. He was, he was a Scotsman, he was XREF, he was straight up and down. I said, no, I believe we can, and we should. He said, well, you put something up to me and I'll, I'll assess it. So I um, wrote up an expedition for them to, to partake in. It was a sailing expedition from Hobsonville out into the Hauraki Gulf for three days, coming back to the Marine Rescue Centre at, um, in Auckland, at Mechanics Bay, putting the people on the, the yachts into transport to go back to Whenua Pai where they had a changeover with the other half of the squadron and then the other half of the squadron came back while we were putting away supplies for the next half of the expedition training. Of the whole squadron, only three people of that squadron did not go on expedition training because they had commitments in that week that we were doing it, otherwise they would have been there too. But this was the dedication of these medics. They took their job extremely seriously to a point where they were um, turning down the opportunities that would otherwise have been there. And I, I acknowledge that and I um, congratulated them on their dedication. In late 1994, I flew with David Powell to Whitianga and had a final interview for the inaugural Whitianga uh, Marina's Marina Manager's job. And by mid-December 1994, I had been selected for the job. By early March 1995 and the week before I retired, I chose to do my last official New Zealand Defence Force flight in a wasp helicopter. Much to the amusement of my Navy helicopter pilot friend, who was, like me, a member of the RNZAF base yacht club as well. But after explaining it combined both my rotary wing and maritime flying operations, he too thought it was quite appropriate. And I certainly didn't miss out on the hands-on opportunities either. <laughs> Woodyanga Marina opened in late March 1995. By September 1996, I had managed to get back into private flying. I qualified as a private pilot at Ardenwall with CFI of the Waitemata Aero Club, Neil Highland. 
on the 18th of October 1997. 28, day, 28 years and 13 days after my first training flight at Tikofi. Quite ridiculous, really. But then again, I did have 6,000 non pilot RNZA aircrew flying hours on my credit and a bunch of hands on experience, including helicopters. The chronology of my private flying is somewhat different to what most aspiring pilots experience. I first flew solo four days after my 16th birthday due to weather. Yes, it was disappointing, but yet again, and this wasn't lost on my father, a good lesson in self-discipline. Private flying experience moved to the Waikato Aeroclub aircraft after Lou's rally was written off in a non-entry accident on a farm airstrip at Tauhei near Morrinsville on the 9th of August 1971. A conversion rating was initially on a Victor 115, followed by Cessna 150, mainly for pairing purposes to Te Araha on Saturdays or Te Kwiti on Sundays, Piper Cherokee PA-28 for night flying, and the Victor 150 for aerobatics, which I fortunately had the CFI, Ken Fennick, as my instructor. I also got limited experience in Piper Cub and Cherokee 6 aircrafts at that time. Flying ceased in, 19, in July 1973 before I joined the Air Force, then briefly resumed for the first eight months of 1975. However, courtship took over and marriage happened in 1977. <laughs> and we're, yeah, we're still at it. Um, flying resumed in March uh, 1981 when I was a couple of crewman, but ceased a couple of months later because the uh, Air Force uh, gave me a posting notice to Singapore, uh, which was taking effect from January 1982. Eventually, uh, flying training was completed in the Cessna 172N at the Mercury Bay Aero Club. And then, uh, a couple of years later, a syndicate of six was formed in 1999 and we bought a Cessna 172L, Delta Foxtrot Golf. Some of you will be aware of this aeroplane, I'm sure. It was bought new by the Waikato Aeroclub in 1972. When it was eventually sold and moved south, it landed in the roof of a house in Mochueka after stalling on takeoff. However, it was rebuilt and uh, it was brought back to life. But anyway, I ended up buying this aeroplane that I'd owned, uh, flying it once before as a student at uh, Hamilton or Waikato Air Club on night circuits with a friend. It now had Madras wingtips and a 180 horsepower Penyang engine conversion. It was an absolutely outstanding aircraft, which is quite at home on farm airstrips and for short takeoff and landing operations. It had a, a higher maximum up um, weight limit and uh, it was brilliant. Of the six of only two of us, of the six, only two of us had our PPL to fly the aeroplane uh, and the other guys weren't really that interested in learning to fly anyway. They paid the full cost of any flying that they needed to do 
and as a result um, we got fully audited by CAA. Two and a half weeks later, CAA got in touch with us. They congratulated us on our non-commercial operation, adding that they did not know why more aircraft owners didn't operate in this way. To assist Great Barrier Airlines with their operational requirements, I gained a rating in a Cherokee 6 to mainly undertake carrying duties and on the occasion as co-pilot for them. A microlight rating was gained in a Technam P92S owned by the Coromandel Flying Club and then an RB12 owned by the Mercury Bay Aero Club, which was the first uh, RB12 that the Mercury Bay Area School students um, built. Delta Fox Rock Golf, our lovely Cessna, was finally sold in 2008 and uh, general aviation flying continued until 2011 for me and the Mercury Bay Aero Club's newly purchased 172S. Due to lack of sufficient reasons to undertake um, much GA flying and its growing associated costs, I let my PPL lapse and just formalised my microlight pilot's licence. Look, uh, everyone, I have indeed been fortunate with a great variety of aircraft I've flown, including helicopters. The closest I get to helicopters now is next to my uh, ex-Air Force friend um, and who works for the Westpac Helicopter Trust in their simulator, um, Daryl Simpson. However, I have managed to keep it all in perspective as a passion rather than a, an obsession. And as long as I can always satisfy the conditions of the mnemonic, I'm safe, I intend to continue with my aviation passion for quite some time yet. I enjoy sharing it with other people. It continues to give me immense pleasure to safely operate aircraft and all the things that go with that and continuing to meet like-minded enthusiasts like yourselves. Maybe for the first time, or maybe just as a reunion, it's, it's always the same. Friends for life. Many thanks for the opportunity of being able to share some of my last 50 years of experiences with you today, and I hope that you will take uh, some time, uh, if you have it, to have a look at some of the memorabilia that I've got on the desk over here, including some live books and photos. Thank you very much for your attention, and I hope you have a great day. Cheers. Just got a little story, but it actually reminded me when you're talking about chess chambers. Now, this is going back in the early 50s, when uh, most of the top dressing, of course, was done with Tiger Moss. Chess Chambers and Bill Peterson were both working for Aircraft Services Limited, based out of Mangary. One Saturday, they were working over in the Unifero area, they finished the job, and on the way home, they actually landed in the paddock beside the tour, the uh, tour cow pub. And they went in. Their loaded driver, Eric DeLuan, who um, was um, bringing the loader back, and they were taking it back to Mangary, and I didn't find out for some time that he was also towing a caravan. He called into the pub. They were kicked out at 6 o'clock, you know, 6 o'clock closing days. 
Jason Chambers looked at Uncle Eric and he looked at him and he said, you're too pissed to drive, you take the aeroplane, I'll take the loader. <laughs> so he jumped in Chas's aeroplane, Bill jumped in his, and off they went to Mangaree. And I found this out years later from um, somebody else that said, all of a sudden I was at Mangaree and there were these two tiger moths, one chasing the other. And when they landed, he said, I knew they'd been, uh, you know, been on the booze. And they said, Eric, but what the hell's going on? He said, well, he said, I didn't know where I was. He said, I stuck the bill like shit to a blanket. And I got here. Well, anyway, Jess went out in the loader. It was race day at Pukekohe. And he got stopped by a cop because he was holding the traffic up. The cop opened the door. Chess fell out. So how, how bad the driver was, I don't know. But I thought it was just something that needed to be told. Thank you. Thanks for that, Dave. That was good. Does anyone else want to um, say a few words about anything? Any causes you want to talk about? Yeah, um, I was talking about Lewis Valiant uh, earlier on and how great an instructor he was. The guy used to do night flying at Te Kopai. No lights, no nothing. And did it very safely. Um, when we had to move to Hamilton to continue flying operations over there because the locals here got a little bit upset with the amount of flying that was going on with all of this flying training and Max asked Lou if he wouldn't mind moving to operate from Hamilton Airport. He said, no, that's fine. I then took up, uh, decided to take up a bit of night flying um, with Lou and that's when I started flying the, the Cherokee, uh, Piper Cherokee. I really remember um, on the first lot of circuits that we were doing on that particular night, I was actually leaning forward to sort of try and figure out where the ground was and where everything was orientated and there was this big hand that was on my shoulder going, I wasn't allowed to use the landing light that was available to me. Oh no, I had to do it by feel. I had to, Lou taught me how to learn my aeroplane. And he just instilled that all the way through. Quite often he'd cover the instruments and he'd, and he'd say, okay, how high are we or how fast are we going, etc., etc." And because I knew my aeroplane and got conditioned to it, I knew. And that's the sort of person that Lou was, he's an absolutely uh, brilliant guy, and uh, I miss him to bits, but he's now um, in the cemetery in, in Thames, overlooking the Thames airfield, so what a better spot than that, that's great. So thank you for all your indulgence. Thanks, Chris. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.